Glad you're here. I want to say welcome. I know we have several families here. Um, welcome to Southside. Glad you're here. I want to tell you a little bit about us as a church, and as some of you college kids are still visiting churches, one of the main things that we major on is what's called expositional preaching or expository preaching, and that idea is that whatever the point of the passage is, that will be the point of the sermon. And so we've been walking through the gospel according to Matthew, I'm not sure, a couple years now, and I think we're going to finish up in July. So we're in chapter 21, so if you want to open up to Matthew chapter 21, if you're using one of our Bibles there in the chairs, you'll need a Bible. It's uh, page 775. And so we jump back in, we had a short break, and we jump back in, and we're going to finish out Matthew. And so we walk verse by verse, paragraph by paragraph, seeking to see... What God can do through his word, what God will do. Again, the prayer of our song is what we want. So we're going to open it up and unpack what is here. And today we come to what's known as the triumphal entry. And it's a new series, really, as we turn a corner here in the Gospel of Matthew from chapter 21 on. And I'm calling it Jesus versus Jerusalem. In some ways, maybe Jerusalem versus Jesus is correct to begin with. But we'll see as we make our way through these chapters why it's Jesus versus Jerusalem. This is his final week. We enter the final week. It begins here with Palm Sunday. Jesus lived 33 years, and one-fourth of this gospel of Matthew, one-fourth of this gospel is about this last week. Chapters 21 to chapters 28 are about the final week of Jesus' life. If you look at all the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, there's 89 chapters. And 29 and a half of those 89 chapters are from this entry into Jerusalem to the resurrection. And these are some challenging chapters, especially this week and next. They're they're hard passages for a couple of reasons. One, because they're loaded with the Old Testament. Matthew has taken his gospel biscuit and just sopped it in the Old Testament. And the second, because in many ways what we're looking at is history. In so many ways we're just studying history this morning. If you've been here for a while this summer, we look at some really, really practical passages in Matthew. And that's the beauty of expositional preaching is that there will be passages that are very practical and there will be passages that are a little more heady and dense. And we need to hear both. And so in so many ways, we're looking at history, how and why Jesus of Nazareth was crucified by the Romans at the Jews' demands. And so it's a fairly tough section of Scripture this week and next. We're going to go deep in the Word. Y'all ready? Deep in the Old Testament in particular. Main point, just as God promised, the Davidic king has come to judge Israel and save all who trust him. So let's see how the king prepares, the king fulfills, and the king enters. So first, here in these first three verses, the king prepares. Look with me at Matthew chapter 21, verses 1 to 3. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. So just on the surface level, these verses are just narrating Jesus' travel plans, aren't they? Simple enough. But as is so often with Scripture, there are deeper layers. 
For example, why does Jesus go to the Mount of Olives? Well, we need to understand this is not just a small geographical note. The Mount of Olives was full of messianic expectations. When Matthew notes this, this is a discreet way of saying he's here. The Messiah is here. The king is here. The Mount of Olives is mentioned right here, and then Jesus is going to go to the temple. He's going to cleanse it out in this symbolic act of judgment next week. And then he's going to do some warning and some teaching. He's going to give the Pharisees the woes. And then he's going to go back. He's going to leave the temple and go back right here to the Mount of Olives in Matthew chapter 24 to prophesy to his disciples the coming destruction of the Jerusalem temple. This is where all this is headed. In fact, flip over a page to Matthew 23 so we can get a sneak peek. This is the final confrontation. This is Jesus versus Jerusalem. He's been warning since the early chapters of Matthew. John the Baptist had the same warning. The axe is already laid at the root. If you don't repent, destruction is coming. And So look at Matthew 23, 37 where Jesus laments. He says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. The city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood and under her wings, and you were not willing. See, your house, he's of course talking about the temple, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And Jesus left the temple and was going away. When his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple, but he answered them, You see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. As he said on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? And Jesus goes in chapter 24 and he talks about these signs of the end of the old covenant age. And then he tells us when it's all going to happen. Look at verse 34 of chapter 24. After these warnings, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. So the Mount of Olives is deeply important, deeply Symbolic here, this is not just some small geographical note. It is filled with significance. And from this Mount of Olives here, back in chapter 21, Jesus sends two disciples. Sends them up to some random village on the way to Jerusalem to find a donkey and her colts. What's going on here? I think often we just think, well, this just has to do with humility. This Jesus comes in, not on a war horse, but on a donkey. I think there's some truth to that, but there's more going on. Was Jesus just tired? No, 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 no. This is all very deliberate. This is Jesus' coming out as Messiah moment. Remember, so far in the gospel, he's been very secretive. Don't tell. Keep it on the down low for now. We call it the messianic secret. Well, those days are over now. Now, Jesus is seeking to draw attention to himself. This is an intentionally provocative move. We never read anywhere else of Jesus or his disciples riding on an animal. They walked everywhere, and here he is. He's almost there to Jerusalem. Maybe a mile or two left till they entered the city. He's already walked more than 100 miles from Caesarea Philippi. 
This is not a case of not being able to finish the last leg. In fact, there was Jewish writing that discouraged it. There was Jewish writing that said you should actually enter the city on foot. And so Jesus' choice here to ride a donkey into the city in the midst of a bunch of other Jewish walkers is deliberate. Jesus knows exactly what he's doing here. He's fulfilling Old Testament prophecy. Here's what one commentator says about this section. It says this section is the most scripture-saturated event in Matthew's gospel since Jesus' infancy. By his actions at his entry to Jerusalem, Jesus makes a series of claims about himself and his ministry. And by deliberately arranging things to fulfill prophetic scripture, he's saying something about himself, end quotes. What he's saying is the king is here. This was all planned. Jesus set all this up. The owners of this donkey and her colt would not have given up their animals to some rando dude that just asked for it. Jesus says, tell the owners the Lord needs them, which is like code words. It's time. It's time. The donkey and the colt are not just random, not just a humble Messiah. It is that. It's not just because Jesus was tired. This is an acted allusion to Old Testament prophecy, specifically Zechariah and Genesis. He's going to tell us that explicitly in the few verses that he's fulfilling Zechariah. But listen to Zechariah chapter 14, verses 1 to 4. One of the reasons these passages are so difficult is we just don't know our Old Testament that well and also we don't know some of the books that Jesus loved so well. Zechariah is a difficult book. One of the problems that we often do is we take the prophecies of the Old Testament and make them about the second coming when Jesus says they're about the first coming. Listen to Zechariah 14, 1 to 4. Behold, a day is coming for the Lord when the spoil taken from you will be divided in your midst. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem. To battle, and the city shall be taken, and the houses plundered, and the women raped. This is the prophecy of what Jesus says in Matthew 24, the destruction of Jerusalem. Half of the city shall go out into exile, but the rest of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations, as when he fights on a day of battle. On that day, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives. That lies before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley, so that one half of the mount shall move northward and the other half southward. And you shall flee to the valley of my mountains, and for the valley of the mountains shall reach to us all. And you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah the king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come, and all the holy ones with him. Then down at verse 9, we read this. The Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one and his name one. This passage is fulfilled when Rome comes in in A.D. 70 and destroys Jerusalem, just like Jesus said it would within a generation, where the pagans plunder the holy city. Mount of Olives is an allusion to Zechariah 14, but also to Genesis 49. Listen to this, Genesis 49.10. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. 
binding his soul to the vine and his donkey's colts to the choice vine. He's washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. This is given to Judah. Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah. This carpenter actually is more than a carpenter. The word more, more likely means construction worker. This Jewish construction worker is headed to the holy city where he will die, be raised, then enthroned as the forever king for everyone. The scepter will not depart from Judah. The peoples, the nations will obey the king who rides on a colt. Here's the point. Jesus is not quietly slipping into Jerusalem. He's not keeping secrets anymore. Jesus is well aware that this decisive confrontation is about to take place in the great city. Jerusalem has opposed him since his birth, and this will ultimately be his final break with Old Covenant Israel, this terminal generation. And so what he's doing in here is what D.A. Carson calls a symbolic self-disclosure. Prophets would often do that. They would perform symbolic actions to make their message clear. And the message here is that the king is coming. The king is coming to judge Jerusalem and save the nations. The donkey does, though, communicate something about the nature of his kingdom, doesn't it? He is not a, the, the Messiah that they expected. He's not a militaristic Messiah. He's a meek Messiah. He's not going to be leading some anti-Rome insurrection, as his disciples thought. Remember what he had just said about leaders in his kingdom? Flip back a page to Matthew chapter 20. His disciples are thinking he's going to come in and destroy Rome in an instant. They're confused. And so notice what he says in Matthew chapter 20, verse 25. They asked to be at his right and his left, these sons of thunder. And here's what he says. You know that... The rulers of the pagans, they lord it over their people. Their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servants. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So he does ride a donkey in to show a little bit of the nature of his kingdom. He doesn't come in and rule by force. And he doesn't come in and rule all at once. He doesn't come in and kill his enemies. Ultimately, he's killed by his enemies. And this kingdom doesn't come all at once. It progressively takes over, just like Daniel prophesied in Daniel chapter 2. It starts as this little stone that dashes the kingdoms of the world and becomes, over time, a great mountain that fills the whole earth. It's why we pray and it's why we work in the Lord's Prayer that the kingdom would come on earth as in heaven. It's why Jesus taught us about the kingdom and the parables of the kingdom in Matthew chapter 13. It's like the smallest of the seeds that slowly becomes a tree. It's like just a little leaven that eventually fills the whole loaf. Jesus riding on a donkey over the Mount of Olives into Jerusalem, spoke much more powerfully than words ever could have about the fact that he's the king. He's the coming king who's going to defeat his enemies and ultimately be enthroned at the right hand of God. But before they don't get, before he wears that crown of glory, he must wear a crown of thorns. Listen to the lyrics of the old hymn, Lead On, O King Eternal. Lead on, O King Eternal, till sin's fierce war shall cease, and holiness shall whisper the sweet amen of peace. 
For not with swords loud clashing or roll of stirring drums, but with deeds of love and mercy, the heavenly kingdom comes. So the king prepares. Secondly, the king fulfills. Look at verse 4. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, quote from Zechariah 9, Say to the daughters of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. In this section of Matthew, Jesus begins to quote Old Testament prophecy after Old Testament prophecy again, much like he did in the first chapters of Matthew. Do you remember that? This was to fulfill what the scripture said. This was to fulfill what the scripture said. This was to fulfill what the prophet said. We see that little phrase 13 times in the gospel of Matthew. And most of them were there in those early chapters. Jesus brings the fulfillment of scripture. In these verses, 1 to 11, there are no less than seven Old Testament quotations or allusions. And here he quotes directly Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. The quote is mostly Zechariah 9, but there's actually a little piece of Isaiah 62, 11. All this is in a cross-reference, by the way. You've got a reference Bible. All these are in there. Little piece of it he adds from Isaiah 62, verse 11. It's a composite quotation, which New Testament authors often do. They'll quote a little piece of something, a little piece of something, and put them together. We'll see it again next week. And what they're doing is showing that all the streams of redemptive history ultimately flow to the feet of this royal Galilean. All the promises of God are yes in Christ. Every story whispers his name. Jesus says, the Old Testament scriptures bear witness about me. He says, if you believe Moses, you would believe me because he wrote about me. He said, everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And so here it's Isaiah 62 and Zechariah 9. Well, what does Jesus want us to know by throwing in a little Isaiah 62? Here's what it says, the full verse, which, by the way, we should often think of these as like hyperlinks. The little phrase or a little sentence from the Old Testament is quoted. We should probably go back and read the whole chapter or the whole section. Isaiah 62, 11 says this, Behold... The Lord has proclaimed to the end of the earth, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your salvation comes. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. This section of Isaiah, the whole section, chapter 40 and following, is about the coming kingdom. God coming back to defeat his enemies and produce a new exodus and ultimately be enthroned. Your God reigns. The restoration of God's people. And so he brings it in here now, I think, to show that this coming kingdom is here, but also to show the universal nature of it, the ends of the earth. Mark starts his gospel with the section from Isaiah. All the gospel writers quote Isaiah 40 and following all over the place. To the end of the earth, this king will not just be for Jerusalem, this king will rule from sea to sea. The nations will be his inheritance. So Jesus quotes Isaiah 62, and he quotes the full context of Zechariah chapter 9. Let me read the full context from Zechariah 9, verses 9 to 13. What does Jesus want us to hear? What is he fulfilling here as he quotes Zechariah 9, 9? 
Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. And the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore to you double. For I've bent Judah as my bow. I've made Ephraim its arrow. I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and wield you like a warrior's sword. Zechariah goes on to say that God will come and God will save. Zechariah is about the return of God so that a purified Jerusalem will become the center of worship for all nations through a Davidic king. And Jesus is saying, I am what Zechariah prophesied. See, so much of the Jewish hope was when God would come back. God would come back and purify. Come back to Jerusalem. And what are the gospel writers telling us? God has come back in the person of Jesus to judge and to save. The return of God to Zion is fulfilled in the coming of Christ in the first century. In other words, Jesus is God. I wasn't going to go here, but I can't help but geek out a little bit. You know what? Zechariah is actually quoting the Psalms. Let me listen to reads from the Psalms to you. Specifically, a royal psalm, a messianic psalm. So here you have the Bible quoting the Bible quoting the Bible. Listen to Psalm 72.1. It's all about the king. It's a, it's a messianic psalm. 72.1. Give the king. It's all about the coming Messiah. Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your people with righteousness. And you're poor with justice. Psalm 72, 8, talking about this coming king. May he have dominion from sea to sea. That's what Zechariah quoted. From the river to the ends of the earth. And then get this. The psalm quotes Genesis 49 that we read earlier about Judah. Notice what he says. May desert tribes bow down to him and his enemies lick the dust. And what does dust remind you of? The very first promise of the gospel that the coming king, the coming offspring of the woman would crush the head of the snake. Then in Psalm 72, 17, he alludes to the promise to Abraham about this coming king. May his name endure forever. His fame continue as long as the sun. May people be blessed in him, all nations. Genesis chapter 12, call him blessed. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. The king has come. The king has come to judge unfaithful old covenant Israel and save the nations. He will rule from sea to sea, from the rivers to the ends of the earth. This section is just laced with Old Testament prophetic hopes being fulfilled. You know, the gospel of Matthew loves, Matthew loves Zechariah. We can't go there, unfortunately, but let me just, just give you a little glimpse here. Zechariah 13, 7 is quoted in Matthew 26, 31. Zechariah 11, 12, and 13 is quoted in Matthew 27, 9, and 10. Zechariah 14, 21 is quoted in Matthew 21, 12. Zechariah 12, 10 
is quoted in Matthew 24, 30. Zechariah 11, 12, and 13 is quoted in Matthew 26, 15, as well as allusions in Matthew 25, 31, and 26, 28. Matthew sopped up his biscuit. The king comes and the king fulfills the scripture. Third, the king enters. Look at Matthew chapter 21, verse 6. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks. And he said on them, most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road. And others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Mark and Luke in their account tell us that it was a foal and it had not been ridden. And so it would need mama near as Jesus rides in. So Jesus mounts the donkey, rides into town as the king of Isaiah 62, as the ruler of Zechariah 9, as the judge of Zechariah 14, as the universal Messiah of Psalm 72. And so the crowd that's with him lays down palm branches. That's why we call it Palm Sunday. Palm branches were a symbol of triumph and victory. They, they lay their cloaks down as a symbol of submission to the king. He will rule. And the crowds praise him. Hosanna! To the son of David, Hosanna in the highest. Hosanna means God save us. It's often just used as like we would say hallelujah, praise the Lord. Praise him. Praise the coming king. And notice what do they call him? Praise who? Praise the son of David. What does that mean? More Old Testament. David was promised a son who would have a kingdom that would last forever. Let me just read some of the most important promises to David. 2 Samuel 7, 12 says this, God speaking to David, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I'll be a father to him. He shall be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I'll discipline him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the sons of men. So David promised a son who would rule forever. Listen to Psalm 89. Verse 3, you've said, I've made a covenant with my chosen one. I've sworn to David, my servant, I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. Psalm 89, 27, I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. My steadfast love I will keep for him forever, forever. And my covenant will stand firm for him. I will establish his offspring forever and his throne as the days of the heavens. Psalm 132, verse 11, the Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne, Jesus is the son of David. In 1 Kings 1, Solomon, who was the immediate son of David, many probably thought he was the heir of the promises. We learned quickly, it ain't him. But Solomon rode a donkey to his enthronement in 1 Kings 1. But Solomon wasn't the guy. And we've known from the very beginning, Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. The king is here. 
Listen to the way Mark puts it in Mark 11. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David, Hosanna in the highest. This phrase here, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, is from Psalm 118. More Old Testament. And Psalm 118 was this collection of psalms. Psalm 113 to 118 are what we call the Hallel Psalms. And they were sung at Passover. And of course, Jesus is now entering at the time of Passover. And so Psalm 118 would have been on their lips. Psalm 118 describes a pilgrimage led by the king into the temple. It's about a victorious Davidic king who's blessed as he enters the temple. His disciples know who he is. His disciples know what he's doing. The Davidic king, the son of David, is entering the city to bring the kingdom of God, and his first stop is the temple. Look at verse 10. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. This is often missed, but notice, all this happened so far outside of the city. These crowds shouting acclamation, they're not in the city yet. These are the Galilean disciples. They're not from Jerusalem. We call this the triumphant entry, but really... He enters after the acclamation. There will be very little acclamation once he enters the city. This is the triumphant journey with an anticlimactic entry. Matthew says the whole city questioned him. Who is this? Of course, Jerusalem has been against him from day one. Literally. Look at Matthew chapter 2. Flip back with me to Matthew chapter 2. Verse 1. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. Pagans, Gentiles saying, where is he who's been born king of the Jews? In other words, the Messiah, the Christ. For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. But when Herod, the king, heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. Here we have the arrival of the king of the Jews and all Jerusalem is troubled about it. And assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. Right from the beginning, they're troubled and question him instead of receiving him. The pagans receive him. The Gentiles, the tax collectors. And this terminal generation of Jews is opposed to him right from the beginning. Right here in the middle, and we'll see it right at the end. Flip all the way to the end of the Gospel of Matthew chapter 27. Some of the most tragic words in Scripture. I want to look at verse 25, but let's begin in verse 15. 
where this is headed. Jesus versus Jerusalem. In this case, Jerusalem versus Jesus. Matthew 27, 15. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Who do you want me to release for you? Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I've suffered much because of him today in a dream. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. Let me read that again. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas, a guilty criminal, and destroy their king. The governor again said to them, which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate, the pagan ruler, said to them, then what shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? They all said, let him be crucified. And he said, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourself, yourselves. And here it is. All the people answered. His blood be on us and our children. And then he released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. From beginning to middle to end, all of Jerusalem is opposed to their king. So he enters Jerusalem and the whole city it's stirred up. The word, is, the word is similar to quaked. The, word, the city quaked. It's this word that it's esthizda, esthizda. You can hear our seismic in that word, right? The city quaked. In fact, Matthew will use that word one more time in chapter 27 when Jesus dies and the earth will shake. As he enters the city, it shakes. And as they crucify him, it shakes. And the crowd says, this is the prophet. This is the prophet. Once again, we need to know our Old Testaments. What prophet? Way back in Deuteronomy chapter 18, we read this prophecy. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me, Moses says, from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. A few verses later, Deuteronomy 18, 18, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among your brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. We've seen again and again, Jesus present, Jesus, Matthew present Jesus as a new Moses, the new prophet. He's the prophet, and we're to listen to him. So Jesus is the prophet of Deuteronomy 18. He's the king of Zechariah 9, the victor of Psalm 118, who will come and judge the temple from Zechariah 14, on and on and on. He's going to come. He's going to perform the work of a priest, atonement, intercession. This is where he's headed. He's going to confront Jerusalem, then be crucified by them. On Sunday, they wave palms at him 
in one week on a Sunday, he will wave his palms to them, showing that they were right. Just didn't realize that his kingdom comes through the cross. Well, what should our response be? In many ways, it's behold the king. Not a lot for us to do from this passage except behold him. The king has come. He's our great prophet, priest, and king. We listen to him. We're saved by him. We're ruled by him. For believers in Jesus, I think the main thing to do is we can hope. We can hope because Jesus is our king. God made all kinds of promises in history. God has made good on those promises. God will make good on his promises in your life, church. He's a promise maker and he's a promise keeper. He's the king. And so we honor him by worship, by submitting every area of our lives to him. We join the crowd, Hosanna, praise him. He's worthy. If you're not a follower of Jesus, I would just ask you, if you're not a Christian or maybe you're not sure, I would just ask you, who is Jesus? It's the most important question in the world. Who is Jesus? What will you do with him? Is he who he claims to be? What do you do with these words? I mean, just consider what we've seen here. Such authority, yet humility. There's none like him. He fulfills Prophecy after prophecy after prophecy that was made hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before he came. What do you make of that? What do you make of him? I would just invite you to consider the claims of Christ. Consider the story. And one, I was going to say the story of this gospel of Matthew, but I hope you see it's the story of the whole Bible. God has made promises. God indeed has kept him. God has come. God came back to restore his people, just like he promised in the person of Jesus Christ. He came and he lived a perfect life, no sin, taught with the utmost authority as one like God, because he is God. And he dies a brutal death on the cross, crucified, the most shameful way a person can die, but death couldn't hold him. He was raised from the dead, just like he promised. He was exalted, enthroned, ascended, just like so many passages said he would be, just like he himself said he would. Now he has all authority. He is at the right hand of God. He is ruling and reigning, and one day he will return and make his rule visible to all. The question is, will you be there? The Bible says that every single knee will bow to his authority. Every tongue will confess that he's the king. And so we're left with two options. Will you do that now? And glad and humble submission? Or will you do it when it's too late in judgment? He is the king. If you have questions about coming to Christ, nothing more we would like to talk to you about. You turn from your sin and you turn to him in trust, faith. Your first step of obedience is believer's baptism. I'm with him and I want you all to know it. Just as God promised, the Davidic king has come to judge Israel and save all who trust in him.